talked about in that whole situation that it's paramount because Jesus said in, in, in His high priestly prayer for the disciples that this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And so, this knowing God is not just a, a little side thing, not a, it's just not a Bob thing. I think it's a, it's a God thing. I mean, God desires us to have a relationship with Him, and it's not to be this sterile, Sunday morning, punch-the-clock, punch-the-ticket relationship that so many people in our culture and so many people in this world have. And I can tell you, for 23 years, I had. I remember, I went to church every Sunday. I punched that ticket, but I didn't know Him. Now, I'd like to tell you that I'm perfect now because of my knowledge of God. That's not the case. Talking to Anna a little bit ago, you know, she came from Sunday school, and um, it was Second Timothy, Christ came into the world to save sinners. Was that the verse that they did? And so I asked her, what's a sinner? I don't know, you know. And I said, well, yes, you do. Come on, let's talk, what's it? you know, little three-year-old, you know. And, what, and I said, a sinner is someone who disobeys. She says, God. I said, that's right, God. I said, are you a sinner? And she said, yes. And I said, you know, because you've disobeyed God. She says, yes. I said, and she said, what about you? <laughs> no, it's good. And I said, yes, honey, I'm a sinner too. And she gave me these big eyes, you know. And, and I said, I've disobeyed God too. I said, but, but I want to obey him all the time. I want to know him. I want to love him. I want to obey him. I said, but I, but I mess up. I said, do you want to obey me? And she said, yes. I said, do you always obey me? The mind's reeling, you know. No. <laughs> Where are we going with this one, Dad? You know? No. I said, see, it's the same thing with God. I said, I want to obey him. But I, I mess up. And that's what it is. We all fall short of the glory of God, isn't it? But it doesn't stop the process, the quest. I want to know him. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. I want to know him in the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to grow in his grace and in his knowledge. That's what the quest is all about. And as we came into that, I I challenged with you and I said, and so I don't want this to be all about theology, which is the study of God, which is by itself an okay word, but we've made it into this sterile um, doctrinal study type thing. But rather it's about diagnosis, and that is the knowledge of God, knowing him. Intimately, relationally, knowing God. The side, sub, side benefit of that, if it's a benefit byproduct, if you would, is we haven't really talked about it, but it's a fact that the more you get to know God, the more you're going to find out about yourself. And the more we, in a sense, examine God, if you would, and become intimate with God, and we find out about how awesome God is and how holy He is, as we looked at last a couple weeks ago, the more I'm going to find out how undeserving of His love I really am. And we'll be talking about His love this morning. But in our study so far, we've looked at the existence and the exclusiveness of God, that God is, and that He is the only God. We've looked at the composition of God, that He is a triunity. And as we talked about in Sunday school a little bit, how mind-boggling that is. I mean, that He is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they're distinct. And yet they're one. And how incomprehensible it is for us to, 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 to grasp all that and put our 
our brains around it. Then we begin looking at the, the attributes of God, looking at his natural attributes, that he's sovereign, that he's omnipotent, and, and all those other limitless things. We've looked at his physical attributes, and then we've considered now beginning uh, his, actually not physical attributes, but his, um, his uh, vocational attributes, and then what he has done as the creator, the judge, and the savior, and we've considered then his moral attributes, and we said that we looked two, two weeks, a couple weeks ago, to look at his holiness. Today we want to look at the love of God, the love of God. And again, as the motif has been talking about the ocean and um, being on the beach and dipping into the ocean, the, the songs that we sing about the love of God talk about how overwhelming his love is. It's kind of like uh, the ocean. And so as we, we look at that ocean and we understand, for at least from this picture, we're out there. You know, this isn't the picture from the, the beach, you know. And the more you, you know God, the further in, if you would, that you walk into this relationship with God, the more you're going to become overwhelmed with one primary thing of God, and that is His love. His love for you. And so we want to look at His love, and first, as we've looked at with the holiness, we're going to look at each of these attributes. We're going to have a consideration of God's love, and then first we want to define what that love really is. And in the Old Testament, the word for love that is used in the Old Testament primarily is the word ahav. Ahav. And you can see ahav basically means to have affection. But ahav is used um, uh, more intensely in in different ways. It is the uh, passionate desire to be intimately united with a person. It's the affection that desires impels towards self-giving. In other words, because you have this passion, this affection, this desire for something or someone, you're willing to give of yourself toward that object or person. And finally, you will give yourself to that which you passionately desire to be intimate with. The thing that you ahav, the thing that you love, you will be willing to sacrifice for. That's the the Old Testament concept of love. And so, some some areas in which this word is being used, first of all, it is the affection of those of the opposite sex for one another. Let's turn to Genesis 24. Okay, we've got a lot of looking in in the Bible today as usual, and that's intentional, because my words are meaningless. Um, They're like the chaff, I pray. They will be like the chaff which the wind drives away. But it is God's word which is eternal. It is God's word which is true. It is God's word which is perfect, and it is God's word which equips us and encourages us. And so we see in Genesis 24, verse 67, about Isaac um, bringing Rebekah into his mother Sarah's tent, and we read that Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he what? He loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Turn to chapter 29. Chapter 29, where we're going to read about Jacob, I believe. Verse 18, it says, Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. Now drop down to verse 30. And uh, where it says, Then Jacob also went into Rachel, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. And so as we consider this word, ahav, we consider this concept of love, first of all, in that illustration of Isaac and Rebekah. <clears throat> how, how long did Isaac know Rebekah when he took Rebekah into his mother Sarah's tent and, and chose to love her? No, no, Isaac with Rebekah. He didn't know her. He didn't know her. Maybe a day. Maybe a day. Okay? 
Because the first time he saw her, he was in the field, and that was Elimelech, uh, Eleazar, Eleazar, um, Abraham's servant, was coming back with her. Remember, he had gone um, by the command of Abraham to find a uh, wife for Isaac, his son. And, and so he asked Rebekah if she would come back, and she said yes, she'd go back. And so here is Isaac in the field, and he sees Rebekah. And it's love at first sight, right? And so it was just all tingles and all that. No, this concept of Ahav is that Isaac chose to place his affection. Do you, do you understand this? He wasn't carried away by his passions. He chose to place his affection upon Rebecca. She was to be his wife. Do you get it? There was no dating at that time. Isaac wasn't going out, playing the field, figuring out you know, which one he liked the best. Dad actually sent off to find him a bride. This was kind of worse than a mail order bride, right? I mean, it was the servant went off. It wasn't even Dad finding it. Dad sent the servant out. And the servant brought back his bride. But Isaac set his affection upon Rebekah. Did you get the picture here? Jacob set his affection upon Rachel. And because of his affection for Rachel, he was willing to what? Work. Wait. Trust. How about sacrifice? He sacrificed 14 years of his life to have this woman. Now guys, you know, look at the bride next to you, you know, would you have been willing to wait to work and sacrifice 14 years of your life to get that bride? Or would you have said, <laughs> there are definitely more fish in the sea than this? The concept of the Hebrew ahav is that ahav is that you've set your affection. And once you've set your affection, you are willing to do and willing to sacrifice for that object of your affection. It is used as the intimate bond between father and favorite son, or father and son. Turn back to Genesis chapter 22, where we see God speaking to Avram in verse 2. And we'll begin at verse 1 for the context. is now it came to pass after these things that God tested Avraham, and said to him, Avraham, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Now take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Verse 25, chapter 25 talks about Jacob and um, his wife, or I mean, sorry, Isaac and Rebekah in their loves, for their separate sons. In verse 28, it says, Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Okay? And then finally here in verse chapter 37, chapter 37, verse 3, we read of Jacob and Joseph. Now Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph, more than all of his children, because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a what? 
a tunic of many colors. When affection is placed upon something again, it will direct your passions. It will direct your um, what you do. And so, if you come all the way back then with Jacob, um, um, I'm sorry, Isaac and Rebekah, loving Esau and Jacob respectively, what happened in that situation? When, when Isaac loved Esau more than he loved Jacob? Trouble. Not, not, okay, problems. But, but, but think of the, just think of the concept of love. Because Isaac set his affection upon Esau, what was he wanting to do? Bless him. Everything was Esau's. But because Rebekah loved Jacob more than she loved Esau, what? She, she helped him to do everything. You know, she had to, 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 to deceive her own husband to get the blessings for her son. But she wanted her son to have the best of everything. Do you get it? Because you have your affection upon that individual, you want them to have the, you want them to have the best. Now, we can say, we can look at the problems that was caused because of that, okay, but that doesn't mean that that's, love is the cause of those problems, okay? But the fact is that when you have that kind of love, when you have a have for something, you want what is best for them, okay? And so it's the intimate bond between a father and a son. It is also the intimate bond we see between Ruth and Naomi. Turn to the book of Ruth, chapter 4. <clears throat> Sometimes we can read over this verse without understanding the, the fullness of what is being stated. It used to be in my Bible. There we go. I'm sorry? Through 17? Oh, oh, 317, thanks, yeah. No, actually, I started in the wrong section. I was like, where am I at? Anyways, but in verse 15, um, in fact, let's start at verse 13. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, Yahweh gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be Yahweh, who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons has borne him. Now, again, we kind of read past this thing because we think we're thinking about the Boaz connection and stuff like that. But your daughter-in-law who loves you. Who was Ruth? She was a Moabitist. She wasn't an Israelite. She was a foreigner. She was one who was despised of the Israelites when she came into land. When she came back with Naomi into the land from Moab, she was not coming to a friendly situation. She was coming to a hostile situation. She was a foreigner. But because of her devotion, because of her affection, that she placed upon her mother-in-law. She chose to place that affection. Remember, when they were leaving Moab, Naomi said to the two daughter-in-laws, Orpah and to Ruth, she said, go back. Go back to your families. Go back to your people. Ruth said what? No. And she clung to her and said, your people will be my people and your God will be my God. She set her affection upon Naomi at that moment. 
In the minute she determined to place her affection upon her, she was willing to serve her. She was willing to look after her. I mean, think about it. It's her mother-in-law. It's not her mom. She left her mom to go with her mother-in-law. And her husband's dead. That's exactly right. The full tie to the mother-in-law is gone. Okay, guys. What about you and your mother-in-law? Ladies, what about you and your mother-in-law? If your husband, your wife, your spouse would die, how close, how, how close of a bond would that relationship with your mother-in-law be? A lot of times we affectionately refer to them as what? Say battle axe. Oh, we're got that on tape. All right. No, I'm thinking outlaw, but anyways, I was trying to think of it. Anyways, <laughs> the in-laws are our outlaws and stuff like that. But anyways, but, but that's not the way it's supposed to be, okay? And very clearly, for Ruth, she chose to go outside of that, con- the, those concepts, and place her affection upon Naomi. And the placement of her affection upon Naomi was so determined was that it was visible to everybody else such that even those who were originally probably her enemies gave her a claim. When Boaz said, I'll take her as my bride. The daughter-in-law who loves you. Again, this ahav, this setting of your affection upon an individual or an object will become very apparent to others, when it is true. It is the intimate bond that we see between David and Jonathan. Turn to 1 Samuel, chapter 18. Verses 1 to 3, we read, Now when he had finished speaking to Saul, this is David, the soul of Jonathan was knit, I'm sorry, Jonathan, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Saul took him that day and would not let him go home to his father's house any more. Then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he, that is Jonathan, loved him, that is David, as his own soul. Drop down to chapter 20, verse 17. Now Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Jonathan was Saul's son. Saul was the king. When Saul would die, who was supposed to become king? Jonathan. But Jonathan set his affection upon David primarily because he knew that God's affection was upon David. And he knew that David was going to be the next king of Israel. And so Jonathan, I believe, in his affection for God, placed his affection upon those whose God's affection was on. Are you, are you tracking with that? Did I use that too many times? Okay. And because he knew the will of God and the plan of God, he set his affection on that which was consistent with God's will and God's plan. And so he placed his affection upon David even over the affection that he had for his own father. 
And once he had placed his affection on that, before God and to David, it was a determined affection. He was willing to die for David, if need be. It's John the Baptist saying about Jesus, he must increase and I must decrease. Did Rebecca do the same thing? No, not necessarily. It's not always right. However, we always want what is best for the other. And so Jonathan, looking at David, in the pureness of his heart, wants what is best for David, and that is the will of God. And he was willing to what? Sacrifice. So again, we go full cycle back to this sacrifice, sacrifice. Once you place your affection, this ahav, on an individual, an object, you will be willing to do whatever it takes for that individual. It is finally the term also used to show the intimate bond between Yahweh and his chosen people. You have a lot of verses on your sermon note sheets from the book of Deuteronomy and such that talk about how God tells Israel, I chose you. I chose to love you. I chose to love your fathers. It wasn't because of your greatness. It wasn't because of your prowess. It wasn't because of anything that you have done, but rather it's because I chose to love you. God chose to love Abraham. God chose to place his affection upon him. God chose to place his affection upon the seed of Abraham. And because God chose to place his, his, his affection upon him, upon them, he then um, becomes committed in that relationship. Turn to Hosea chapter 3. Hosea 3, where we see an illustration of how God um, talks about his relationship with Israel. Hosea chapter 3. Look at verse 1. Then Yahweh said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover, and is committing adultery, just like the love of Yahweh for the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. God says, I love Israel, just like a husband loves his bride. And as we talked about in Sunday school, some of the things that God asked the prophets to do that seemed a little strange, Hosea being asked to marry a prostitute. Hosea had to do what? Place his affection upon that, that woman. She was not the one who would have been desirable at that time. Hosea had to make a decision, and God says, in the same manner, I have chosen to place my affection upon Israel, who has chosen to play the harlot. And yet I still love her because my affection is a decision. It's not a feeling. Do you get it? Through all these intimate connections, love has been a decision, an act of the will 
not an act of feelings. And so God's love for the children of Israel, and this is, plays importance as we come into the New Testament, God's love is a determined love. It's a volitional love. It's not an emotional love. Though emotions may be a part of it. It's not based solely upon emotions. And so we then come into the, the New Covenant, the New Testament, the Greek language. And in the Greek language, you've heard me share this many times, there are three primary words for the, for the word love in the Greek. Now there's the fourth, and it's the word storge, and that talks about family. It's a familial love. Okay? But apart from those, when we, when we address other people, there is the word eros. Okay? It's where we get our word erotic from. Okay? Um, it's a passionate love which desires the other for itself. In other words, I love you for what you do for me. Okay? And so this is the word that we use for I love pepperoni pizza, I love fast cars, I love this, I love that. Okay? And so it's a, it's a totally selfish kind of love. I, love. I love this because of what it does for me. The second is the word philos, philos which is the love of friends for friends. It's so Philadelphia, okay, it's brotherly love. And so it's the friends, and we've talked about this in the past, and this one says basically that if there's enough uh, cereal for only me or you, I hope you find some, because this is where my love ends. In other words, if I have a box of cereal, man, I'm willing to share. But if I open up the box of cereal and there's only enough there for a little bit, it's behind my back until you leave. And then I'm going to what? I'm going to eat it. You got Wrigley, Wrigley's gum, you know, the, the spearmint gum or whatever. I'm not a big gum chewer, but you know that some of you older ones, you know the little the sticks of gum that were in there, how you bought the little pack and the 10-pack, you know, and, and you pull out the gum and you realize there's only one stick left and there's somebody hanging out with you. You have a decision to make, don't you? You don't pull it out in front of them. There you go. That's exactly right. See, I've made you want the gum. See that? You're pulling it out. you have enough for everybody else now? You do? Okay, good. <laughs> That's why you thought about that. You, you looked first. Anyways. But at that point, you pull it out and you see it. And you have a decision to make because now you've pulled it out. You didn't put your hand in your pocket and kind of feel inside there to f- how many sticks were left in the pack, right? Oh, there's only one. I better take my hand back out empty, right? But now you pulled the pack out and there's only one there. And your friends saw it. You have a decision to make. You either say what? Hey, you want some gum? And let them taste and relish. Yeah, don't make contact. That's right. Don't make eye contact. Let them relish in the taste and the flavor of that last piece of gum while your mouth is, is watering, wishing that it could have tasted it. Or you act ignorantly, like you're not even noticing the situation, and you just kind of open it up, put it in your mouth, and just go on your way, and just hope that they haven't noticed the whole concept either, and just kind of move on with life, right? But what? Split it in half. There you go. That, that's, that's a good start. Cut it in half, break it in half, let them have half, and you have half. Philos, philos, would, would either cut it in half or eat it yourself. Get it? If I had two or three, philos says what? Hey, you want some gum? I got some gum. You want some gum? You know, and you're eating it. It's no problem. But philos takes a different twist when you only have one piece left. Okay? The final one is agape. Okay, which we refer to a lot of times as 
agape, but agape, and it's self-giving love that is directed towards a person, object, that one has set their affection and passion upon. Does that sound familiar? Which word of these Greek words do you think the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which one of these words do you think is used to translate the word ahav? Agape. That's exactly right. Isn't it interesting? They have the opportunity to use any of these words. Even storyge for that, that family kind of love. But the word that is used is agape. Showing, again, a determined affection that one has made. And that one is willing to sacrifice even self for the other. And so we come back to that Wrigley Spearmint Gum. And uh, I hope Wrigley's going to give me some money for this advertisement. Anyways, um, and you pull it out and you say what? Hey, I got some gum. Why don't you have some gum? And you don't even let on that what? It's your last piece and you don't really want them to have it because you really want it instead. Because you really don't. Because when you realized it was the last piece, you didn't have your affection upon it anymore. Because you cared more about them than you did about the gum. And you wanted them to have the gum. Now that's pretty rough, isn't it? Because inwardly, even though I'm willing to sacrifice at times, I still struggle with that servant's heart because my heart's still not right. Outwardly, I can serve. And, and I can humbly put somebody else's value and desires above my own. And I could even self-sacrifice. I could give you the last meal. But inside my heart, I might be really grumbling about it too. Because I did what was right. But I didn't do it out of love. Do you get it? That's what this word is all about, though. Is when you set your affection upon them, you want them to have it. And your heart is right. Because it's not a sacrifice. People talk about the sacrifice I've made as far as coming into the ministry. I've never seen it as a sacrifice. Do you get it? I just It's just never been a sacrifice for me. I've never missed what could have been. I think all of you sacrificed by not having the opportunity to serve the Lord. And to serve. Now, I'm not saying you don't serve him wherever you're at, but you get it? From my side of seeing the blessings of it, I go, golly, you don't know what you're missing. I mean, I feel like I got the, 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 the corner of the deal. But how many times people have said to me, man, I can't believe how much you sacrificed to do that. Man, I don't see the sacrifice. I just don't see it. But when you ahav, when you agape, that will be the end result. And what's exciting is, is that's the love that God has for you and I as we see it expressed in his provision for us. What's the, the ultimate provision that God has made for us? His salvation. Look, all the way in the Old Covenant. This is not even New Covenant stuff. This is Old Covenant stuff, right? Isaiah 63, verses 7 to 9. I will mention the loving kindnesses. This is the chesed of God. Chesed is my favorite word of the entire Bible. Some of you know that. Some of you don't. So now you're introduced to it. Chesed. It's like clearing your throat. Chesed, you know? And chesed is God's faithful loving kindness to the objects of his covenant. It is the whole realm 
of where we understand what God's grace is all about. And we're told, I will mention the chaseds of God, of Yahweh. I will mention the loving kindnesses of Yahweh and the praises of Yahweh according to all that Yahweh has bestowed upon us in the great goodness toward the house of Israel, which he has bestowed on them according to his mercies. Eved. According to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie. So he became their savior. Stop for a moment. God determined to set his affection upon Israel, the seed of Abraham. In, in that, I, now understand that this, we know that this happened not really in the land of Ur, not when Avram was 75 years old. This really occurred when? At creation, before the foundations of the world were laid. The whole plan of God was already established. We know that even about ourselves in Ephesians chapter 1. And so before the foundations of the world were laid, God sent Christ to be, to be our Savior, right? Well, that comes through Abram. And so, which is the, the children of Israel. So God sets his affection upon him, and because he sets his affection upon Israel and upon mankind, he knows that we need a what? A Savior. You see where this leads? Ahav, agape, love, true love, will lead you to be willing to joyfully sacrifice. For he said, surely they are my people, children who will not lie, so he became their Savior. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bore them and he carried them all the days of old. How did the children of Israel eat when they were in the wilderness? God fed them. How did the children of Israel drink when they were in the desert? God gave them water. How did the children of Israel clothe themselves when they were in the wilderness? Their clothes didn't wear out. Figure that one out, huh? There wasn't, there wasn't the, uh, the yard sale at every, uh, you know, cactus in the desert. Yeah, I don't know if they even had cactus over there, actually. And uh, so the, the reality is that God took care of them. He provided for them. And that's just the physical plane. But even more so, God says, in that spiritual plane, He will be our Redeemer. He will be our Savior. He will be our Deliverer. John 3.16 A passage that you all know. We teach it to our kids at the young age. For God in this manner, so, that the word so, hutos actually means in this manner, for God in this manner loved the world. How did he love the world? He gave his only begotten son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever would what? Believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to what? Condemn the world. Don't we act that way sometimes, though? He didn't. God loves the world. God loves every individual on the face of the earth. I'm not into this total predestination stuff. I believe in predestination. I believe in election. I believe there's a balance in it. I believe God means what he says when he says that he, he loves every individual on the face of the earth and that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for the whole world. 
I don't believe God's a liar. I don't think God lied and said that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. But the only ones who can, who can, who can have it are the ones I put a little twist in them so that they can, they can receive it. I think that's antithetical to, to, to God's love and God's mercy and God's grace and God's holiness and God's righteousness and God's word. Yet with the other side of my mouth, I tell you, I believe in predestination and I believe in election. How those two things come together is for a different message. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because God doesn't like him. No, because he what? He wouldn't believe. Because he wouldn't believe. He's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world in men what? Ah, Get it? Men set their affection upon darkness rather than God. And so we're not even toward the end here. But what is your affection set upon? What do you have your affection set upon? As we've come through Ahav and all those different things, God set his affection upon you. But only when you set your affection upon him will you enter into that covenant. He's already paid the price. All you have to do is accept it. 1 John 4, 9-10 through 10. We read it this morning in our, our, our um, Bible reading. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Big word, basically means the payment. He's the payment for our sins. I deserve to die. I deserve to go to hell. I deserve to be totally separate eternally from God. Jesus paid that penalty for me. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life which I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so the life that I live now Again, it's not by my own power, but by what? That which God has given me by his, his love, by setting his affection upon me. Ephesians 2, 4-9, But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages that come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Now, go back a couple weeks ago before I went to Florida to the, when we looked at the moral attribute of God of holiness. Remember, I talked about John 3.16, and I said that John 3.16 was probably one of the greatest verses on God's holiness. Do you remember that? Why did I say that that was a great verse on holiness, even though holiness is never even talked about in it? Why, ultimately, 
did God love the world in sending his son? Because we couldn't come before him because of his holiness. Because we're sinners. And so God, in his love, was willing to pay the price so that I could have fellowship with him. God, who was rich in his mercy because of his great love, extended his grace. Holiness times love equals grace. I love math. It means grace is the product of holiness and love. When you take holiness and love, God's holiness and love, and you bring them together, do you know what you'll wind up with? God's grace. God's grace. It won't be a wishy-washy little, oh, let anybody in. Or it won't be the, the other side of pummeling the individual because of holiness. But rather you'll have grace. Where God, by His grace, presents a way that you can receive the blessings that He wants to offer in the relationship with Him. For it's by grace that you are saved through faith. God's grace is opening up the path that you don't have to come by your works, but that you can come by faith. And do you know why God's grace did that? Because God loved you. If God didn't love you, if he didn't set his affection upon you, he wouldn't even have to worry about opening up his grace. We focus on his grace so much, but the reality is his grace is a product of his love and his holiness. That's why he did it. Romans 5, For scarcely for a righteous man one will die, but yet for a good man some would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his love to us, and while we were yet sinners, or, if you would, enemies of God, Christ died for us. So now we get a little bit deeper on this. Now I'm not even talking about your spouse. Now let's talk about your mortal enemy. Let's talk about the one who would love to see you destroyed at any cost. The one who loves the opposite of you. Loves darkness rather than light. Get it? Would you die for that person? Would you set your affection upon that person and do whatever it took to reach that person? That's what God did for you. While we were at enmity with God, that means his enemies, he set his affection upon us. How many of you have loved God from the time you came out of your mother's womb? Not a one of you. And even now, as his children, I would tell you that you probably still struggle with your allegiance. As I said earlier with the conversation with Anna, I want to obey him, but I don't always. And that don't always means that there are times when I what? I choose not to love God supremely. Aren't you glad 
that God never made a decision about you? I mean, just once, God said, you know what? (laughs) I think that I'd rather have than them. And all of a sudden, your eternal security goes out the window. Your salvation goes fully away. Because God's love was fickle, like ours. He set his affection upon us. Finally, in this little section, Isaiah 38, back to the Old Covenant. Verses 16 and 17. O Lord, by these things men live, and in all these things is the life of my spirit, so you will restore me and make me live. Indeed, it was for my own peace that I had great bitterness. But you have lovingly delivered my soul from the pit of corruption. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. There was a, a pastor in a small village of India full of Hindus. And he had a fruit stand. And he had a little tent that they would use, a little hut for, for church. And he was, it's kind of like the, the, the book of Acts where he was, People were getting saved, and it was causing a disturbance to the economy of the area with the idols and stuff like that. And two men were were sent in, like the syndicate, you know, and um, to to destroy him. They destroyed his fruit stand, and then they tied him to a pole in that hut, and they cut off his right arm, and left him to die, bleeding to death. His wife, by coincidence, happened in. After, just after it happened, grabbed the rag, stuffed it in his arm, in his hole, was able to get him to medical attention, and they were able to sear it, and his life was saved. And so he went back with vengeance to destroy those two men who destroyed him. No, it didn't happen that way. Rather, he went back to that village with a renewed love, rebuilt the fruit stand, And that man who cut off his arm is now a deacon in the church. One could say he's now his right-hand man. Isn't that awful? But it's true. He loved him. Even after everything he had done to him. And was fully committed to sharing with him what God had shared with him. What, What do I have? that I have not yet received, that I haven't received. I mean, it's not mine anyway. In the tent that I live in, it's just a tent for here. But that's how much God loved you, and even more. And so, we're told that the greatest form of love is that you're willing to do what? Lay down your life. We'll talk about that more next week, but lay down your life for another. In his protection of us, we read in in Romans 8, says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Is it, God, it is God who justifies. Who is he condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore, it is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God who makes intercession for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors because of our own righteousness, because of our own prowessness. 
Right? No. How are we more than conquerors? Through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because God has set his affection upon us. As we slide into the second area, this is only part one today, so we're not going to be finishing this at all. And there's a collective sigh of relief. But I can't end at this point without bringing up this first provocation of looking at God's love. Clearly, considering God's love should provoke in us a desire for worship. If there's nothing, I mean, the holiness of God ought to desire for me just to fall on my knees and, and to claim who he is. But apart from God's love, that's very distant. God's love, more than anything else, is everything you have. And if God's love doesn't get you where it hurts, or where it feels good, which is probably the same place, what will? What will cause you to praise God if not an examination of how much he loves you? And so our love for him is going to be displayed in our devotion to him. Jesus was approached by the young man who said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said, I don't know. There's too many of them for to know. Is that what he said? No. Instantly he came back with the Shema from Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4-9. to right? And he said what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. Basically, in a nutshell, with everything you are. With a commitment of your affection is the idea. We can break it into parts, which we're not going to do right now, but bringing it as a whole, that you shall love the Lord your God with everything you are. Just as God loved you, you should love him. And the second is like unto it. You should love your neighbors yourself. We'll talk about that more next week. 1 John chapter 4, verses 15 to 19. Turn there with me. We read that this morning, and we saw a piece of it a little bit earlier. It says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. God calls us to love him responsibly in return for his love for us. And when I love him responsibly because of his love for me, then I know and I'm assured of his perfect love, his determined love, his asserted love, in that he will never separate me from his presence. Therefore, I don't have to what? Fear. 
there are times in the past when I will have gone to my child, my son, with my hand out, and there will be a cringe. In that moment, as a dad, I cringe. Why? Because there was a little bit of fear coming, because at that moment they weren't sure how the hand was being extended. That's why we try to use a, a, a toll instrument for spanking rather than just our hands, because I don't want my hand to be associated with that spanking. Does, does that make sense? And, and I can honestly say, I mean, in the past, there were times when even in my struggles, I mean, even now, in, in anger at times, to grab an ear or to whatever, that's sin in me. I'm not claiming that. That's sin, okay? And so we struggle with those things. But you know, with God, I don't have to worry about that. God will spank me when I need it. But he's, just, he's not going to just grab me by the ear. Does that make sense? And so because of his perfect love, I don't have to walk in fear. I can walk in love toward God. His love isn't fickle. His affection isn't wishy-washy. It's true. And I don't have to worry about him changing what his affection is. In Luke 7, 40-48, you can read this later, but Jesus gives the parable um, to Simon. He's talking to Simon. And he says, Simon, i got a question for you. And Simon says, go ahead, teacher, ask it. And he says, there was a man who had two employees. One owed him five, and I'm going to probably mess up the, the, the numbers here, but you, you can follow with me. Five minus, and the other one owed him 50 minus. And he freely forgave, forgave them both. Which one will love him more? And Simon says, well, clearly the one who owed him more. And he says, you've well said. This woman that you're despising has come in here, and she has, she's washed my feet with the t- her tears, which you didn't wash at all. She's anointed my head, which you didn't anoint. Woman, your sins are forgiven you. And they climb out and they go, what? Who can forgive sins but God? But what's the point? It's love. But it's our love back to God. That when if you understand what God has forgiven you of, you will respond with what? That great affection and love as that woman did for Jesus. She humiliated herself in front of a whole room full of people because she understood the forgiveness that God, through his love, extended her. What about you? What about me? It's displayed in our devotion. There's many other verses that we could go to, and we may come back and review this next week and pick up some of these, but clearly as a rebuke in the end to the church of Ephesus, Jesus talks about all these things that they had done, these wonderful things, but he said, but I have one thing against you, and that is you lost your first, you've lost your first love. And he says, repent, or else I'm going to come and remove the candlestick. I'm going to remove the glory from you. Secondly, it's displayed in our obedience to him. And we are told, again in these passages that we'll come back and review next week, that if you say you know him, if you say that you love him, then you will obey him.
The one who obeys him is the one who loves him. And if you choose not to obey him, then you're choosing not to love him. If you have kids, you understand that. You understand the disrespect, whether it was intentional or not, that you have received through the child's determined decision to do something other than what you have asked them or commanded them to do. How much more so then to God who has given us everything. Next week we'll pick this up with our application of it and looking at our desire to worship Him but also our desire to reflect Him. But for now, God is love. And we know that we love Him because He first loved us. The question is, do you? Do you agape God? When Jesus talked to Peter, as he came back and he said to Peter, he says, Peter, do you agape me? Now I'm going to do this in Greek because in English it, you don't get this. Because it says, do you love me? And he says, I love you. He says, do you love me? He says, I love you. He says, do you love me? He says, Lord, you know I love you. And we kind of wonder what's going on. But here's what happens. Jesus says, Peter, do you agape me? And Peter says, I phileo you. Jesus said, do you love me selflessly? Peter says, I love you like a friend. Peter was honest. He just denied him three times. Again, then Jesus said, feed my sheep. And again, Jesus asked him, he says, Peter, do you agape me? Peter says, Lord, I phileo you. He said, tend to my lambs. The third time, Jesus said to him, Peter, do you phileo me? And that's when Peter says, Lord, (laughs) you know everything. You know my heart. You know everything there is about me. You know I only phileo you. But Jesus says, what? Feed my sheep. What's the point? I still love you. And I'm still committed to you. Do you love God? Be honest in your heart. He knows it anyway. Do you love him with an eros kind of love? Do you love him because of what he does for you? And if the blessing should stop, you're not going to love him anymore? Do you love him with a phileo kind of love and when push comes to shove, you'll get what's yours and God's left standing? You know, when it, when it comes to the point between something really deep down that you want to do and something you know God really wants you to do? Who wins out? Or do you love him with an agape kind of love? I can't tell you I love God with an agape love. I can tell you I want to. I yearn to. But I prove probably every week, somewhere along that week, in the times when I choose to do what Bob wants over what God wants, then I'm not always there. But do you want to? That's the quest. Do you want to? Do you want to be there? Or doesn't it matter to you? If it doesn't matter, you've got a problem. You really do. Because Jesus said the greatest commandment is the love. Agape God. 
with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I mean, all these things we read about that's devotion. It's all agape. It's not philo. It's not eros. It's agape, 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 agape. And if you don't have any desire to agape, you really have to question your relationship with God. I mean, even Anna understands. She wants to obey. But she doesn't always. Are you able to comprehend the width, length, depth, and height of God's love for you? No. The answer to that is no. <laughs> you can't. But you may try, and you may try to grasp it. And so, in that grasping of it all, does your life display it? Does your life display the fact that you can't grasp the greatness of God's love? And so, therefore, because of God's so great love for you, you're willing to do anything for him? What about your devotional life? How much time do you want to spend with God? I mean, honestly, if you knew somebody loved you so overwhelmingly with such great love, wouldn't you want to spend time with them? So we really bear out how much we really believe that God loves me by how much time we want to spend with him. By where we set our affection, we will spend our time and where we'll spend our money. Isn't that true? Isn't that what the scripture says? Where we set our heart, that's where we're going to spend our money. That's where we're going to spend our time. Where's your affection? I can probably tell you by your checkbook and your, and your calendar. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. A deep, abounding love. One that it is fully hard for us to comprehend. God, one that I am forever indebted to and grateful for. One which I could never match. One which I could never ultimately repay. Lord, I thank you that while I was in enmity with you, you were in love with me. God, I pray that you would help us to be men and women who are those who have set our affection upon you, who have determined to be passionate in our relationship with you. Lord, I pray that that would be very visible to those that are about us. Clearly yours is. Clearly yours has been determined. Yours has been passionate. And yours is very evident in our lives. Help us to love you who first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.